Right, if you're not already there, please turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Now, when you hear the word adoption, what word association do you put with that? Uh, what, whatever association or word that you associate with adoption, that's likely tells you what you're thinking about adoption. Now, when you think about adoption, you're, you're probably thinking on the horizontal level, human to human adoption, adoption of an orphan. And, and that's good. Now, it is necessary for us to think of orphans in this world because the reality is there are orphans. And also, orphans, in a sense, uh, taking care of orphans is a necessary outflow of our love for Jesus Christ. I mean, how could you not, if you saw an orphan, how could you not want to help meet that need if you were able to, to meet that need? It would it would take a calloused and cold and really a dead heart to look at an orphan and have the means to help them and not help them. So the the care of orphans is is very uh, is an indicator of how of our relationship with our Lord and our love for our Lord and our God. So much so that in the context of of warning us about the type of the type of religion that is worthless. James, the half-brother of our Lord Jesus Christ, tells us that the true follower of Christ will be known by his care of orphans. Not only that, also our abstaining from sin, but the care of orphans is an indicator of our love status with our Lord and our God. He says that in James chapter 1, verse 27. He says, pure and undefiled religion before our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Care of orphans isn't the only thing, but it is a a key part of our application of our love for our God and love for our neighbors. This is one practical application of the command to love our neighbor, to love your neighbor. James expands on his argument of this in in James chapter 2, and I'll just read that to you. He says, What use is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead by itself. Now, don't be confused into thinking that James is contradicting what Paul has said, that as salvation comes apart from works. We'll, we'll get to that in Ephesians chapter 2. But what James is saying is, is your faith, if it doesn't impact how you, le- how you live, is really a worthless faith. It is not a saving faith. In other words, it's a false faith, is what James is exposing by that. And the Apostle John makes a similar point in 1 John 3. This is how important this, this issue is. He says, The Apostle John says in 1 John 3, verse 16, he says, By this we have known love, that he, he, that is Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down down our lives for the brothers. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. All of this reinforces the point that our horizontal thinking about adoption is very important. It is critically important. It shows that we have a love of God. And historically, Christians have been at the forefront 
of adoption care. And that, that has weighed, uh, waned back and forth over the years. But it is something that we must, as Christians, make sure that we're doing everything we can to care for adoptions. Maybe you can't adopt. Maybe you can't foster. But you can pray for someone who can. Or maybe you can finance somebody that can do that. And Christians are called to do this. It's, a, it's just one of those things that God wants us to do. How we care for those who are helpless and are, are, can't help themselves says a lot about our own walk with our Lord and our God. Having said that, if we only think about the horizontal level of adoption, we're going to be missing something very significant. If I were to ask you who in this room is adopted, would you raise your hand? Some of you are thinking more on the vertical lines. And that's what we want to focus on today is that vertical adoption. That if you are in Christ, you have been adopted. And, and this is one of those great truths that Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1. Paul reveals that this doctrine of adoption is, is very critical. If you were to ask the average Christian, what doctrines are essential to help me understand the grace of God? How many of you would list adoption there? But Paul lists it second. He hits election first, and then he goes right to adoption. That shows you how critical it is for us to understand that God's wonderful grace has been poured out upon us. In fact, John Piper calls adoption the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel. Listen to him. He says the deepest and strongest foundation of adoption is located not in the act of humans adopting humans, but in God adopting humans. And this act is not part of his ordinary providence in the world. It is at the heart of of the gospel. So adoption, that vertical adoption here we're speaking, where, where God adopts human beings into his family, is at the heart of the gospel. So as you learn about the doctrine of adoption this morning, don't view it simply, simply as, as one of the many side benefits that God brings to those he saves. Think of it as a core element that's designed to help elicit praise within you for your Lord and your God. Let's read together Ephesians chapter 1. And again, I'll read verses 3 to 14 because all of this flows together and it helps us keep the big picture in mind. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning of verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him in love. By predestining us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he graciously bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our transgressions, according to the riches of his grace, which he caused to abound to us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in him, for an administration of the fullness of the times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth in him. In him we also have been made an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, to the end that we 
who have first hoped in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance unto the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. This morning from Ephesians 1 verses 5 to 6, we're going to see four awe-inspiring facts of your adoption that are given to entice us to greater praise of God, greater adoration of God. And the first of these is that your adoption was not an afterthought with God. Your adoption was not an afterthought with God. But positively, it was pre-planned. It was pre-planned. Now, we're, we're looking at this, in some cases, verse by verse, and what Paul is saying. Remember, it's, it, this is one long sentence from verse 3 to verse 14. Many of your Bibles will, will end a sentence, begin a new sentence at the end of verse 4, being in verse 5. But that's fine. It helps us in some way. It helps, helps us understand the flow. Um, you know, it breaks it down into bite-sized pieces for us. But in another sense, it kind of hides the fact that all of this is flowing together. Paul is, is taking us to on a tour, if you will, of God's great blessings. So the blessing of adoption is tied to the blessing of election, and it's not a, a separate topic. It, it flows together. Now, what Paul is doing is he's acting like a tour guide, uh, taking us from one mountaintop to another that we might declare the excellencies and praise of our God. And um, Lloyd-Jones explains this marvelously. I'll just Let me just quote him here. This is from Martin Lloyd-Jones. In the fifth verse, uh, the apostle leads us on to something yet more glorious. It is as if we were climbing up a staircase to some wonderful high tower. We reach a kind of platform with a glorious view than which nothing greater seems to be possible. One would have thought that nothing could be added to the previous statement, that is of election, but the apostle does add to it. And he does so because he feels that he has not yet told us everything about the exceeding riches of God's grace. So he does go on to tell us of a further truth, namely that we have been predestined unto the adoption of sons. Not only do we stand before God, we stand before him as his sons, as adopted sons, unquote. And that is the marvelous truth of which we're looking at. Adoption is a, is a doctrine that should elicit great praise and adoration for our Lord and our God. Paul is describing a specific blessing. He's moving from election then to the predestination to us as sons. Now, what does it mean when Paul talks about us being predestined uh, to sons? Now, the word predestined is related to the word election. And sometimes they're used as synonyms depending on the book that you're reading. We need to understand that election and predestination are not exactly the same thing. Predestination would be the larger category. Election would be a subset of predestination. That's typically how it's broken up in theology books. You can think of the difference this way. Predestination is the plan that God had. It's the plan in his mind to do something. He determined beforehand to do something. Election is the beginning of the working out of that plan. He 
elected. The, the predetermining is in the mind of God. Election is the beginning of acting out, calling in that plan into action. Now, the word predestined is, is used by Paul four times. It's also used by the author of Luke in, in, the, um, in the book of Acts. What is the, what does the word predestined mean? It simply means to decide beforehand. To make a decision before something long ever, ever happens. And we get the sense of that by seeing how the word is used in its context. So one of those places is used by Luke in Acts chapter 4, verse 28. And you can turn there or just listen as I read it. Acts 4, verse 28. And this is in a context where Peter and John were arrested and then told not to proclaim Christ. And yet they continued to proclaim Christ. And the authorities re-arrested them and said, what are you doing? We told you not to... He told you not to proclaim Christ, and Peter and John said, well, we have to. There's just, we have to obey God rather than man. We're going to proclaim Christ. That's the context. And then when, they, when Peter and John are released and go back with the believers to meet with the believers, in, in their prayer, they say this, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do Whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Let that sink in a minute. It helps us understand a lot about what God's sovereignty does and what, what, it, what it's telling us and what it doesn't tell us. Or what it's, what it's saying and what it isn't saying. Who crucified Jesus? Who murdered the Savior? Well, we're told. Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, and the peoples of Israel. They're responsible. They will be held responsible by God for the greatest atrocity on the face of the earth, killing an absolutely innocent man. Killing him on our behalf is for our benefit, but nonetheless they put to death an innocent man. And not just an innocent man, but the Son of God. But at the same time, Acts 28 tells us that this was predestined by God. He knew it. He planned it. And he brought it to pass. Sinners that put Jesus to death are still responsible for their sin. Nonetheless, our Father planned Jesus' death so that he might redeem us. So there is a word predestined used in his context. The Father planned ahead of time that Christ would be crucified. Christ's crucifixion is not plan B, it's plan A, worked out to perfection. We also see the word predestined used by Paul in Romans chapter 8, verses 29 to 30. And there it's used twice. I'll just read it to you. And this is a kind of the, the golden link of salvation, the golden chains of salvation, as, as, as uh, theologians will often call them, just speaking of God's work in our lives. Here, Paul says, now, uh, just, just jumping into verse 29, says, Because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. And just and those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And one, one doctrine builds on to another, and that's why they're linked together uh, imagery like a chain. But it's his work to decide beforehand. Those he decided beforehand would become conformed to the image of his son. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 
where Paul is talking about the wisdom uh, of God versus the, the, the wisdom of man in a context where the gospel is preached. And Paul is emphasizing the fact that he preached the gospel that, that the Corinthians would believe not in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. He says this, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the wisdom which has been hidden, which God predestined before the ages to our glory. Again, you see the word predestined is talking about something that God decided a long time beforehand. And Ephesians helps us understand that long time beforehand was before the foundation of the world. And then the word is predestined used in the, in the verse we're looking at today. That, that in, in this election by God is predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. It's also used in verse 11. In him we also have been made an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his, of his will. Now in the broadest sense, predestination means God has already determined everything that happens. That's hard for us to comprehend. It, 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 he does this by his sovereignty. It's not that just God works everything to according to the counsel of his will. He does that, but he predetermines it, and then he works the plan to perfection. And nobody can interrupt that plan. Not Satan, not you, not sinners, not a whole nation rallied against God. No one can alter God's plan. He is working out that plan to perfection. But in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, Paul's not speaking about the grand sense of, of working out all things to God's predetermined plan. He's talking about a one part of that, that that he wants to highlight in order to elicit our praise of him. And that is God predestined us. He, he is predestined certain individuals to adoption as sons. And he, he identifies these individuals with the pronoun us. Now, in, in the context of Ephesians 3 to verse 14, the pronouns us refer to Paul and to the Ephesians, but it's not just limited to them. It, it is This passage is written to the church universal. So if you are in Christ, insert your name in that us. If you are a believer today, insert your name in the us. It, this, this passage is clearly, clearly meant to apply to all who are genuine, genuine believers. And so the focus... Um, God's focus here in this passage is to specify the predestination of true believers. And this, again, re-emphasizes the fact that God's election, that God's predestination of us, emphasizes the fact that, that we had no influence on his decision. None at all. This is just his doing. If God determined beforehand... Right, that decision was made beforehand without looking down the eons of time to look at what's going to happen to see if you're going to have faith or not and then, and then make some kind of decision based on your decision. That's not what scriptures teach at all. So predetermined beforehand before the foundation of the world, that is God's plan. He is working that plan. It's God's Salvation is God's initiative is another way to, to look at this. We would have never chosen God he had to choose us. He had to predestine us to adoption as sons, or we would never be adopted as sons through faith in Christ. Now, what is the goal of, of predestining, of this, this predestination, of this adoption? And that is adoption as sons. This is just, just pointing out the obvious because it is so glorious and we just kind of blow by it. And 
it just kind of becomes kind of old hat. We don't appreciate the truths that are here. He predestined us to adoption as sons. Now, he's saying sons, but don't be offended if you're a female. It's sons and daughters. He's just using a generic sense there to apply to all believers. The, it's, the emphasis is on the relationship. It's bringing people, bringing human beings into the family of God. I mean, that this, this is a reality that is just um, is one that we need to spend more time contemplating. Again, you just hear adoption. Yeah, God has adopted us. No. Please hear what Paul is saying. Wake your mind up. Meditate on these things. You, a sinful human being, if you are in Christ, you have been brought into the family of God. You face discouragement. You face, some of you face, what I call depression. This is one of those remedies for that. It's not going to fix everything. It's not going to make everything go away. You can't mag- it's not magic. But by you meditating on the truth that God has adopted you into his family can help you endure some of the difficult things that you go through with some joy in your step. Yes, you're having difficulty in this life. Yes, there are discouragements. There are some really severe discouragements. And yet, by meditating on the truth that you've been brought into the family of God as a, as a beloved child can help you. Right? Focusing on that truth, encourage your heart and strengthen you to do what is right. Now, this, this, the biblical concept of, of adoption is, is the goal that God predestined us for. And one, context, one commentator helpfully notes this, and I'll just quote him here. He says, the biblical discussion of predestination emphasizes more what God's children have been predestined to than who has been predestined. The word predestination emphasizes what we've been predestined to more so than who has been predestined. Who is just the us. A little emphasis there. But it's, but it's to. What have you been predestined to? And that is to adoption. Now, Paul speaks of adoption in several places in Scripture, and he's all, the only one that explicitly uses the word adoption. He, he refers to adoption in Romans chapter 8, verses 15 and 23, and Romans 9, chapter 9, verse 4, and also in Galatians 4, 5, and we'll look at some of those in a minute. But remember that Paul is writing this letter while imprisoned in Rome. So Roman law... He's a Roman citizen as well, but Roman law is very much on his mind. So as Paul is choosing this word under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's choosing this word adoption very intentionally, likely with Roman connotations, Roman law in his in his mind. And that's significant. So what do the Romans think about adoption? How do they practice adoption according to Roman law? Harold Horner in his in his uh, commentary summarizes the Roman practice of adoption. I'll just quote him. He says, in Roman culture, adoption normally occurred when a man had no children and would adopt a son, usually a teenager, by means of a minor court procedure. Once the young lad was adopted into the new family, he was no longer accountable to his natural father, only to his newly acquired father, unquote. This isn't a strange concept to us. For us, adoptions typically involve younger children for the Romans, it, it typically involved teenagers, those who were older, those who could potentially be an heir 
to an estate of a Roman who had no natural son. The, the implication is that the adopted son carries all of the legal status of a natural son. He is an heir in every way, shape, and form. He has all the, he has all the responsibilities of his father, but he also has all the privileges of his father. All of that comes along through with the idea of adoption. So he would enjoy the freedom. And the freedom that he likely didn't have before, because another commentator actually pointed out that often when the Romans adopted a teenage boy, he wasn't a freeman. He was a slave. So they would select uh, somebody who was formerly slave, adopt them a son, and make them a freeman. So they would enjoy all the freedom that their father had. There's a lot of truths that draw these analogies draw into our understanding of, of adoption. And this is the idea that the Holy Spirit wants you to understand. When, when a person is adopted, they're, they're out from under the authority of their natural father, which for us is Satan, and he's put under the authority of our Heavenly Father. Remember, Jesus puts all people in one family or the other. You're either in the family of Satan or in the family of God. There's not another spiritual family on the face of the earth. We're born into the family of Satan. And we're bought out by God on that slavery descent into his family. And we're under his authority. That's what adoption does for us. So we need to remind ourselves that adoption was something that God predestined us to. This isn't just something that he added later. And just as we learned or we read from, from Acts 4 that God predestined Christ to be crucified, He predestined your adoption as a son or a daughter right? through Christ. That was something God decided beforehand. Again, it's not something that he, that he tacked on. It says, oh, things are really a mess on earth. I guess I better adopt a few children. This was His plan. This is His plan. And, and it, again, this is proof that salvation is not man's design or man's plan or a woman's design or a woman's plan. This is God's plan because none of us would design it this way. None of us would plan it this way. None of us could carry this out to such perfection. So let that fact sink in that your adoption was pre-planned. It wasn't an afterthought. And that should elicit praise in your, in your life and elicit you to praise your Lord and your God. Now the second fact that that would stir us to praise our Lord and our God, the second fact of our adoption is this. Your adoption was accomplished by Jesus Christ. And, and we see this through the little phrase, through Jesus Christ. He was predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Again, it's a simple, clear phrase. But without that phrase, there's no adoption. Without Christ, no adoption. Right? Think about it as this. It's clear. It's simple. Um, but don't let it overlook your significance. You have a holy God, the holy God, who is perfect in, in everything that he does. He doesn't do anything that's wrong. He doesn't do he doesn't engage in sin in one little bit. First uh, John one five says in him is light and in him there is no darkness at all. The implication there is darkness and life. Light have no fellowship. Light chases out the darkness. There is no fellowship. And in that context, John is specifically saying that if you're walking in sin, 
and yet you have fellowship with God, you're a liar. Because God cannot have fellowship with, with a sinner. Right? That ongoing intimate communion with someone who is, who is sinning and ongoing. John isn't talking about the individualistic sins. Right? He, what he's saying is if the character of your heart is that of a sinner and not redeemed, and yet you say you have fellowship with God, you're, you're a liar. So God can't have any fellowship with us. He can't do what the rulers of the world do sometimes when they favor somebody. They just look at them and they might have done something wrong and they just brush their wrong under the carpet and they pretend like it didn't happen and try to, you know, try to just be, benefit them and, and favor them. Because God is righteous and holy, he can't do that. So in order to adopt us as sons, something has got to happen. And that something is redemption. And there's a connection between redemption and adoption that Paul makes in Galatians 4. I'm just going to ask you to turn there. To turn back one book from Ephesians. Turn one book back to Galatians. Galatians chapter 4. And I'd like to read to you verses 1 to 7. Give us a little context, but pay attention to verse 5 in particular. Paul says there, Now I say... As long as an heir is is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and stewards until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were enslaved under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Notice that, that the Lord Jesus was sent to redeem us so that we might receive adoption as sons. So, To adopt us as sinners, Christ had to redeem us. And again, why do we need to be redeemed? We need to be redeemed because we have fallen into sin. All of us. There's no one who has done what is righteous. Everyone has sinned against God and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all broken God's law. We all have not done what he's called us to do. So both the negative and the positive aspects of the law, we've broken it. We we busted it from the very beginning, from the time you were born. You were born a sinner. There wasn't a time when you were innocent. Yes, children look innocent and they are cute. And especially as a grandfather, you think that especially cute. I get that. But theologically, they're born in sin. We all are born in sin like that. So, And the penalty for sin is death. Death, which is really pointing us to not just physical death, but separation from our Lord and our God. There's no fellowship. No fellowship at all. Totally broken. In order to bring us to God, Christ had to redeem us. He had to become one of us. So what did he have to do to redeem us? He had to become one of us. The second person of the Trinity, Jesus, the the Holy Spirit, had to become incarnate. He had to become God with us. He had to fulfill the law perfectly, not even sinning in thought or attitude one single time. You think it's hard to live with your co-workers at work or your neighbors or your family members? Think how hard it was for Jesus to live with his family. And yet he didn't sin one time. One time. 
So he had to fulfill the law perfectly. And then he had to die in our place. He had to bleed and die on the cross for our sins in order to bring us to God. And he had to be resurrected in newness of life. The resurrection is just as important as his death. It shows that he he, he conquered death, that he made the payment for our sins in full. And because he had made that payment in full, then death no longer had a grip on him. And he was raised from the dead. And he has the power of resurrection and gives life to whomever he pleases. Those who come by faith, in faith, to him. So Jesus Christ is the means of our adoption. There's no other way. There's no other way whereby a sinful human being can be adopted into the family of the Holy God. Now listen, here's one of the implications of this. If, if, the, if the Father's election of us was individual, and I've argued that in my last message, and specific, and if the Father's predestined you to adoption was individualistic, meaning not corporately, but he's looking individually and he is predestining all those who come to know him. If that's true, then whom did Christ die for? He was on the cross. Bit of a controversy within Christianity. But how could the Savior be at odds with the Father? If the Father's will is to elect you individually and to predestine you to adoption individually, then for sure Christ knew for whom he died on the cross. That's pointing to a definite atonement. I don't like the term unlimited atonement, I mean, of limited atonement because it, it uh, is too easily misunderstood. The atonement has unlimited power to cleanse sin. It cleanses the, the sin of all who come to know Christ. But this is a definite redemption. This is definite atonement because it's definite. Uh, God's will is definite in his election and he's definite in his predestination. So it makes sense that he's definite in his atonement uh, of Jesus' atonement for sinners. So meditate on that as you as you wrestle wrestle with that. The son is not going to be have a different will than the father. What the father does, the son does. What the son does, he sees his father doing. So we can make a case for definite atonement, send a whole message on it. But I just wanted you to see them the implications of adoption. This is specific adoption, specific redemption. And and understand, Jesus is the channel of the Father's blessings to us. This is reiterated. I won't go through Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 14 and point all that out. But just even though we can segregate the sections, say, okay, this part's the Father's blessings, this part's the Son's blessings, this part's the Spirit's blessings, all of it is in Christ. You just see in Him, in Him, in Him, in Him, all through the passage. Those blessings flow to us in Christ. And this is emphasized even at the end of verse uh, 6. That grace which is graciously bestowed on us and the beloved. You just see it flow through. There's an emphasis on grace because this stirs us to praise. It also helps us to see there's absolutely nothing we could have done right, to earn our salvation. Grace can't be earned. Right? There's other places of scripture that argue that. If, if you earn something, then it's not grace. It's, it's a gift, uh, not a gift, but it's like payment for what you did. So if you do something, then it can't be given to you. You earn that. 
So grace inherently tells us that there's nothing we could have done to earn our salvation. God is super generous. He's lavishly generous. And that's what Paul is wanting, wanting us to understand. God is so lavishly generous that he's poured out his grace upon us. And he can do that freely because of Jesus' redemption. So we've, we've seen that our adoption was pre-planned by God the Father. It was accomplished through Jesus Christ. And the third awe-inspiring fact of your adoption given to us to, to entice you to, to greater praise of God is that your adoption makes God your father. Now, we're engaged in Bible studies, so some of this is obvious. And that's, that's why I'm drawing it out. Adoption makes God your father. We need to meditate, soak this in. Um, the, you see the phrase there. He's adopting us to sons right? through, through Jesus Christ to whom? To him. To himself. God thinks it's important enough to really point that out. It's to him. Adoption brings us into intimate fellowship with God. It's through faith in Jesus Christ. And adoption brings us into that legal standing, yes, but also intimate fellowship. So the, the word, the little preposition to, to him, it's not just the legal standing of adoption, but it is also the relational aspect of adoption. When a man and a woman adopt a son or a daughter, they, they don't just do it to provide them legal standing. They do it to bring them into relationship with them. And let's not lose sight of that. God desires fellowship with us, and it's not because he needs that fellowship. God doesn't need anything. We need him. We need his fellowship. But he doesn't need anything, so he's doing it for our good. Now, adoption is an expression, some say the greatest expression of, of God's love for us. Martin Lloyd-Jones, again, I'll just quote him here. He's very helpful. He said, the adoption is the highest expression of God's love. You might think the death of Christ is the highest expression of God's love. And we don't want to pit these things against each other. It is an expression of love. Jesus said that, that you know, no greater love uh, a man has than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. It is a great love that Christ gave us. He demonstrated that to us. But it is also a great love that, that God the Father draws us into his family with him. And, and John draws us out, the Apostle John, in 1 John 3, I'll just read verses 1 to 3. He says, see, what, see how great a love the Father has given to us that we would be called children of God, and we are. I mean, he's saying we're not just called that, we are that. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not yet been manifested as yet what we will be. We know that when he is manifested, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. So John is reiterating the fact that the father has adopted all those who have been born again in Christ. All those who have come to faith in Christ, they're adopted. And, and we are children of God. And yet he acknowledges at the same time in that text that we aren't what we should be. And we aren't what we will be. And we will be made complete in him. And, and in a sense, this is where 
the earthly concept of adoption is very unlike the heavenly idea of adoption. There's some similarities. Legally standing and, and the privileges, that's, that's similar. But heavenly adoption is different. Because in earthly adoption, the son doesn't become necessarily like the father. He has his own DNA. He has his own characteristics. But in heavenly adoption, the Lord does something supernatural called regeneration. And that's beginning to make us like himself. To the point where at the end of that, there is a sense in which where we see our full adoption when we're made to be perfect like him. And, and Paul explores this in Romans chapter 8. So I'll have you turn there. Romans chapter 8. And I wanted you to see some of the context. So it's, it was hard for me to decide um, where to begin reading. Paul mentions adoption both in verse 15 and in verse 23. And so I'm going to begin a reading of verse 9 just to give us a little bit of the context to understand what Paul is saying. He's talking about the Spirit of God dwelling in us and our battle with sin. He says in verse 9, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Just point out there, that verse helps us understand there's no like second receiving. There's no like a, a second element to salvation where you receive the Holy Spirit later. Paul says if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not saved. Implying that if you are saved, you have the Holy Spirit. Those things come together. But if, if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the practices of the body, you will live. For as many are, as are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. It is that Spirit given to us that, that makes us Sons of God. That, that helps us to cry out to God and relate to Him in a way that we didn't have before. It is He is our Father. And the idea of calling out to God as your Father is quite rare in the Old Testament. But it is to be commonplace in the life of a believer, a New Testament believer, because of the redemption which is in Christ Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit who comes to live within us to help us to cry out to our God and Father. And we're told the Spirit's work uh, testifies within our spirit, verse 16, that we are children of God. The Holy Spirit confirms that, that we are indeed children of God. And if children, also heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may be also glorified with him. These, these things are just so packed of wonderful truths. I mean, just think of that. Right there, you're, taught, you're called to be co-heirs with Christ. You just read over that and you think, you don't get that certain thought. But, but you need to like wake yourself up. You're co-heirs with who? With Christ? Again, the reality of our lives, sometimes we get beat down and get discouraged. But these are truths. These aren't pie in the sky, just think positive type things. This is truth 
revealed to you to help you get through some difficult times here on earth and to remind you who you are in Christ. God's children, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. But Paul's not done. Read in verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation eagerly waits for the, for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. And you say, wait a minute, Paul, you're saying we have been adopted, but now you're saying we're waiting for adoption. The answer is yes. You have legal standing now. And you're growing into greater Christ-likeness that is the likeness of his son. But there's an element in which your full adoption as a son or daughter of God awaits your glorification. That, that's the moment that'll happen when you see him. That's what First John 3 says. We'll, we'll be made to be like him when we see him. When will you see him? Either when he returns at his second coming or upon your death, if you are in Christ. And that's when the, the glory of your adoption will really be manifested. Then you will truly represent your Lord and your God without blemish, without stain, without any sin. And, and why did the Father do this? Go back to Ephesians 1. Why did the Father do this? Well, Paul tells us, Ephesians, he says there, verse 5, according to the good pleasure of his will. It was his good pleasure. You know, sometimes you're put in a circumstance where you really don't want to do something, but you just can't turn your back on it. You're like, oh. you see somebody that needs some food, or I don't know. It wasn't in your plan that day to, to do that. You have all those other things planned, but God puts something in front of you, and you're like, okay, I, I just got to do that. And so you kind of, you do the right thing, but you kind of do it a little begrudgingly because you had other things planned, or you had planned, other things planned for that the money that you you know, whatever. The Lord provides these things for us. But you kind of do it begrudgingly is the point. And you can grow in that. And you guess, Lord, help me do this with the right attitude. And that's the right thing to do. But God didn't adopt us with that kind of idea. It's like, ah, oh, yeah, I'm going to create these people. And then they're going to fall in sin. And ah, I got to adopt them. Oh, it's the right thing to do. But really? Oh, yeah, okay. No, thank you for laughing because it's so ridiculous. It's God desires to have you in his family. You and me. And he knows everything about us. You only knew some of your sin. He knows all of your sin. And yet he still chose you. He still predestined you. Think about that. It was the good pleasure of his will. To adopt you as a son or daughter in Christ. You praise a glorious God. Who do you praise? Think about it this way. One commentator highlighted it, the significance of it this way. He says, 
Not a grim Lord watching over the execution of his predetermined plan, but a smiling father is praised. That's a good contrast. Not a grim Lord, but a joyful father. A joyful father who gives life. So that's the third awe-inspiring fact of your adoption. Given to entice you to praise of God. You're adopted to God, the Father. Put into his family. And the fourth one is this. Your adoption magnifies the glory of God's grace. Do you want to know you're adopt- why you're adopted? Because God chose you. He thought you were a good object lesson of his grace. Meaning you didn't deserve it. I didn't deserve it either. If you were to evaluate humanity over its whole length and breadth and everything like that, human beings would look at this as like, God chose you? Yeah. And the scriptures say that. There are not many mighty, not many noble, not many wise. Most of us are, meaning the ones that the world would pass over. But God chose you. God chose me for adoption. To the praise of his glory, which is a, a refrain that's repeated. Look at, ver- at the end of verse 12, the end of verse 14, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory. That's one of the themes of this passage. But Paul adds a little something to it. He just doesn't say to the praise of his glory, does he? To the praise of the glory of his grace. Paul and the Holy Spirit wanted to add an emphasis on grace. All of this is because of grace. And when you receive something by grace, the natural response is to say, thank you, praise you, God. And not just to praise him, but adore him and worship him with your life. That's, that's the heart of someone who has been adopted. Is some, someone that's brought in and made alive. His, God's grace is a thematic element in this whole passage. And even flows into chapter 2 and we get there just how gracious God is for us. Um, and, and look in Ephesians verse 6, he says, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he graciously bestowed on us in the beloved. There's a play of words. Notice the glory of his grace, which he graciously bestowed. He graciously gave us his grace. That's the same word, just different, different form of the word. But it's emphasizing the fact that this is all by grace. It's all by grace. This means your election, your predestination to adoption of sons was all by God's choice, by his grace. You didn't deserve it, but God chose you anyway as a trophy of his grace. So that tells you a little bit about the purpose of your life. Purpose of your life is to give God glory, to live to the praise of the glory of his grace. So you want to wake up every morning, whether you're retired or just starting your your career, every day wake up and say, my purpose today is to live to the praise of the glory of His grace. And praise Him and exalt Him. Because you are totally undeserving of this, as is anyone who has ever saved. We're all undeserving. How do we respond to these things? With praise. Again, I've quoted Martin Lloyd-Jones Numerous times, and one more time I will quote him because he's so helpful on these things. This is what he told his congregation. Let us pause and contemplate these things. Let us arouse ourselves to a realization through the spirit of what adoption means. 
and the things that follow from it. Let us spend less time with the newspapers. Can I add less time on your screens? And with all the talk about worldly honors, let us face these things. They belong to us. We as Christians have been predestined to the adoption of children by Jesus Christ unto God himself. Praise be unto God for having looked upon us miserable, damned sinners and for having raised us up to such an indescribable height of glory. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Lord, what can we say to these things? What a great gift you have given to us. That you have given us of yourself so generously to all who will believe in Christ. You don't look at us in any way looking for something in us to choose and a reason to choose us, for, for you would never choose us. But you have chosen us out of your grace, out of your love, for forgiveness of sins, for redemption through Jesus Christ our Lord, to adoption as sons, to the praise of your glory. Oh, Lord God, cause these truths to resonate in our minds daily and hourly. Lord, to help provide guidance and a framework for our purpose in life. To praise you and to glorify you. To, to live in a way that, that demonstrates that we are your children, chosen by grace. By your wonderful grace, your loving grace. And Lord God, I just pray that, that you would work in people's lives even today, even here, who may not be part of the family of God at this time, but you're not done. Eternity is not yet upon us. There's time for them to believe. Lord God, I just pray that you would impress upon them that now is the hour of their salvation. Now is the time to believe. We do not know what tomorrow will bring. Bring them into your family. And even today, give them faith to believe and faith to follow and faith to love and faith to embrace your truth. Lord God, thank you for just your work in our lives. May we live to the praise of your glory, to the praise of the glory of your wonderful grace. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information, a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.